0: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. As we've confronted the opioid crisis, a boom in meth, and the ravages of fentanyl, there's another drug in another era that lingers in the minds of many people, shaping their responses. That's crack, the smokable version of cocaine that flooded onto American streets in the 1980s. The problem is, Donovan X. Ramsey argues in a persuasive new book, When Crack Was King, most people misremember the crack era biased by shoddy journalism, undergirded by anti-blackness, and stewing in the myths created during that time. Ramsey hopes his work can act as a corrective, helping American society see the history more clearly and heal some of the traumas of the times. He's coming up next, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's a complex book, but perhaps the thesis statement of Donovan X. Ramsey's new work, When Crack Was King, is this, quote, the crack epidemic was the consequence of anti-blackness that permeated and continues to permeate every facet of American society and public policy. Reagan, the CIA, the cartels, and the Contras had no need to conspire because the entire machinery of the United States was designed either to our detriment or with no regard for us at all, Ramsey writes. The crack epidemic was not the product of an anti-black conspiracy but the product of an anti-black system. Crack and the social problems that it both exploited and expanded were bad. People damaged their bodies, families got hurt, whole neighborhoods reeled from the impacts of addiction and the money flowing through the illicit economy. What was it to live through this era? How did the mythologization of crack align with its economic and social effects? What did crack cause, and what did crack excuse? What did crack cover up, and what did crack reveal? Whose trauma is all this trauma? These are difficult questions, hard to report on, hard to get people to open up about, hard to write into, and Ramsey attempts to tackle them all. Welcome to the show, Donovan. Hey, Alexis, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. You know, reading this book, I thought a lot about the movies and the songs and the jokes that kind of reached me as a kid about what the crack era meant but it didn't really feel close to me. How did you as a kid kind of experience what this era was? Like what were the imagers or the tropes that filtered to you as a kid?
2: So you know my my earliest memories are of that era. I was born in 1987, um, grew up in a neighborhood that was hard hit by crack in Columbus Ohio and um, you know when I think about the crack epidemic, I think about my neighbor Michelle, a woman that I never um, met but who was just known in the neighborhood because her house was the center of so much activity mm. and um, such a source of fear for for people in our neighborhood. Um, you know, I think about my first bike, which was stolen by a crack addict um, in a very sort of sad moment. I um, lost the air in my tire and was, you know, just standing on the street trying to figure out how I would tell my mom when I got home. And a guy walked up and was like, hey, I can fix that for you. Um just walked
0: know,
2: off. And, yeah, and, and walked off and I waited there, you know, five minutes, ten minutes, an hour, and eventually had to go home and have my mom explain to me why an adult would do something like that and mm-hmm. um try to explain you know, in in essence, addiction to me.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So I mean, how did you then decide to write a book about something that, you know, we kind of mentioned at the top, like lots of other people don't want to write about this era. They don't want to even talk about this era. So how did you decide this, this is what I need to go in on?
2: Yeah, for me, it was, um, you know, as a journalist, I've always um, wanted to tell difficult stories um, and try to explain things that I, that I think would help unlock some understanding of the way life is. Um, and, you know, growing up the way that I did, the big questions of the crack era stuck with me, you know, why did this happen? How did it happen? Why did it happen to communities like mine that those never went away? So as I made my way through journalism school and into the industry, um, you know, it was something that I wanted to write about. And I was shocked that no one had written Mm -hmm. an authoritative history of the crack era yet. Um, so it seemed really more like a calling, right, that I, you know, had the 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 background that I have, but also the benefit of a lot of oppor- of opportunity and access as a storyteller that I, you know, I felt like if I was going to write a book, that this should be it.
0: Hmm. Did your parents, what did your parents tell you about what was happening around you, you know, before you got into all of this reporting, you know, like both before and after you were a kid? Yeah.
2: Well, you know, I was raised by a single mother alongside my my two sisters. And, um, you know, I come from working class folks and my mom's main objective was to keep us safe. So she mostly just told us to mind our business. Right. I think a lot of people that grew up in the crack era in neighborhoods that were hard hit understand that it was kind of like growing up in a steel town where nobody talked about steel Mm -hmm. uh, because it was the source of so much shame and fear. So you know if we walked down the street and we saw someone who looked like they were strung out, you know, she would tell us to look the other way. You know, when we saw the guys on the corner, you know, doing hand to hands, uh she was like mind your business. You know, mm. you don't want to, you know, don't know get what up that is. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, all that did was it just made me more curious. Mm. And um you know, I thank my mom for for keeping me safe. And I think that that was effective.
0: But it did leave a lot of questions for me. Yeah. You know, when I've talked with people in reporting, you know, from longtime black neighborhoods about the kind of before and after of the crack era, which as you know, was also this moment of, you know, massive political disappointment, industrial decline. There are a lot of other things going on. I always got the sense that people thought something fell apart. Did you grow up with that or did you come up after the time where there kind of wasn't that before or at least, you know, the nostalgia for before this era?
2: I grew up, I mean, right, right in the thick of it. So I didn't have a relationship to the black community pre-crack. And that was a part of uh, why I wrote the book the way that I did, um, where it actually starts in 1965. Because I think that you can't really understand all that was lost during the crack epidemic without understanding that Mm pre-crack period. You know, um, American history, at least Black American history, is often taught as, you know, slavery, maybe reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the civil rights movement and you're done. And there's no way of explaining, you know, our criminal justice system or the state of our communities today through the highs of the civil rights movement. You have to also get into those lows of the crack era. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I found is that you had that crack hit cities that were great migration cities, mm-hmm. cities that Black folks left the South for, for opportunity and jobs, and that they found those opportunities, but they were tenuous. Um, so what had been working class neighborhoods, working class Black neighborhoods, when deindustrialization happened and people lost those good factory jobs and opportunities for employment, they became areas of concentrated poverty Mm -hmm. or or ghettos. Mm -hmm. And that created a vulnerability for something like crack, where people were not only devastated and looking to check out, looking to, um, to, to, to sort of turn away from their daily, um, sort of, depression and, dissatisf- and dissatisfaction, but you also had this economic need for young men who couldn't find jobs to make money.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And crack was perfect for that.
0: Well, you also trace the way that a really n- another form of conservative politics, had sort of coalesced around first Nixon, and then uh, you kind of trace it into the Reagan era that was about being tough on crime anti-drugs. Can you describe a little bit of how you saw that formation occurring?
2: So um, I would say that the war on drugs in earnest starts with Richard Nixon, who um, is opposing or being opposed by the anti-war left, by the Black Panther Party, by all of those progressive movements of the uh, 60s and 70s. And, um, you know, his Folks from his administration have, you know, now admitted the fact that the war on drugs was originally a program to target those groups um, because they were associated with, you know, drugs and and free love and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Nixon's approach originally was to target marijuana and heroin. um, And he was not able to see that war on drugs through because he ultimately, you know, resigned in, in in shame. Um, but that the war on drugs was picked up later and really taken to its zenith by Ronald Reagan, who was following really the same game plan, which was to target something that everybody uses, drugs, or that I, I should say every every community uses, mm-hmm. and to use it as a tool to, to target certain communities. So we see the war on drugs really um, become a powerful thing. Um, I should say, on, you know, on, on on both sides of the aisle, but it's really um, led by by the Republican Party um, as a way of sort of fanning the flames of the culture war hmm. of getting voters to say, you know, look at those people over there making bad decisions and ruining themselves in their communities. And I have an answer for that. And that answer was um mass incarceration really mm-hmm. and that goes you know again from from Nixon all the way to the um Clinton administration and we still see you know
0: glimmers of it
2: i think in today's politics
0: yeah you know as you were tracing that kind of how the on the ground reality of crack kind of met this socio-political context you the approach that you decided to take was really to follow four people closely through this kind of desire to to humanize this big, broad, you know, difficult set of problems, you know, you have a, a quote that kind of lays out the way that you did it. Um, maybe you could just read that paragraph.
2: So I wrote, um, I've been all over the country and I've interviewed hundreds of people whose lives were touched by crack, but never have I met a crackhead. I met people, dealers who thought they'd have just one hit. Party girls who stayed at the party a little too long. Men and, women, men and women who simply started experimenting with drugs in the wrong decade. Their stories were buried by that word.
0: Because yeah. kind of like crackhead comes to stand in for all of these things. Right. And to obscure so much of what you see as really the real history here.
2: It does. You know, I think that. Something that I discovered in in reporting this book is most people in our country don't even know what crack is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that they have lots of ideas about the substance that then inform their ideas about people who use or sell the substance. So, you know, we made a myth of crack in the 80s and 90s that it was this super drug that was somehow different from you know any other drug and it wasn't you know Mm -hmm. it's 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 cocaine that's smokable and it's our misunderstanding that made it hard for us to i think respond properly
0: we're talking with donovan x ramsey about his new book when crack was king a people's history of a misunderstood era we'd love to hear from you i mean did the crack epidemic touch your life what's your story? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads. We're KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned.
3: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission.
0: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Donovan X. Ramsey about his new book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. We'll be taking some of your calls and comments throughout the hour. Did the crack epidemic touch your life? I'd like to hear that story, if you can share it. number is 866-733-6786, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Um... Donovan, you know, you mentioned that a lot of people really lack kind of basic understanding just about sort of what crack is. And I thought maybe you could share a little bit about the origins. Like how did the actual drug itself go from cocaine to being this other substance that we call crack?
2: So that story is actually a Bay Area story. In um, my research, you know, I interviewed hundreds of people across the country in the hardest hit cities, um, about 12 cities in, in total that I visited over the course of a year. And the story that I got back time and time again is that people learned it from folks in in Berkeley um, that that I was able to track down what they called a head shop, which is um, basically mm-hmm. a place where they sell paraphernalia. Uh, Bongs and things. And uh, there was a book that was published there by an independent publisher called The Pleasures of Cocaine. And this book included a recipe for creating free base um, crack cocaine. And um, free base is actually a a chemistry term. I don't think a lot of people know this. Um, So, free base is when you separate the base of a compound or when you free it from its other elements. Um, And it was, I was told, a group of students, um, Berkeley students that actually were just uh, cocaine enthusiasts, is what they called themselves, and they were experimenting with different ways to, to consume the drug, and they came up with this way to make cocaine smokable and that's what crack is crack is chemically the same substance as powder cocaine it's just smokable because its base has been freed from the other elements so anything that you smoke goes directly to your brain um gets a more intense high a faster high but that high is short lived um so i would liken this to um you know maybe smoking uh, a joint versus having an edible Mm-hmm. that you're that you know it's the same drug you know it's essentially the same high, the same potential for addiction, but that because of the way it's actually metabolized it creates a different method of use. So people binged crack because they wouldn't stay high for very long and it was the binging of crack that made people think that it was mm-hmm. super addictive um when when in reality it just you know
0: had um, uh, a different
2: uh, effect in the body.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's the actual sort of like material. How about like the social object of crack? Because there was this racialization of cocaine, then this kind of hyper racialization of crack. How did that shift happen? Well,
2: you know, we in this country have always had a uh, sort of mixed uh, attitude towards drugs, where some drugs or I should say substances are seen as okay. Um, And then they could suddenly not be think of something like alcohol prohibition um, in our country Um, and cocaine throughout really the 70s was seen as a very glamorous drug. Um, And it was associated with wealth and associated with, um, frankly, white white people. Um, Crack, as it comes along, makes cocaine accessible to people that didn't have it before uh, because it was uh, so much cheaper than powder cocaine. So it became associated with poor people, with people of color, um, also communities of color. Our, you know, our our physical neighborhoods became really the sites for the drug trade. So mm. people's ideas of crack being, say, a black thing comes out of it being um, cheap and also used by black people. But also, you know, the fact that it was sold in black neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, I should note, though, that just like anything else in this country, the majority of folks that use crack were white. Right, that the majority of Americans are white. <laughs> Therefore, the majority of um, uh, you know people who 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 use that substance were as well. Um, black and Latino folks did use crack at disproportionate rates, but we weren't the majority of its users. Mm.
0: You know, one of the things that is really fascinating in this book, you know, you follow the story of, of Sean, who gets caught up in in dealing drugs before he, he gets out of it. And there's an element with cocaine coming in from abroad that, you know, can feel like it's global. But the thing that Sean's story really showed to me was kind of how tight the whole ecosystem of crack was, you know, this you know, processing, the distributing, the selling was kind of all happening, not just within a neighborhood, but within Sean's story, kind of like within a building, like people who'd known each other since they were little kids.
2: One of the characters, you know, Sean McRae that I uh, feature in the book, he grew up in in Hayes Homes Projects in in Newark, New Jersey. And uh, through my research, I found that um, drug dealing that happened in in housing projects was unique in that it operated like co-ops uh, because they were people that had existing relationships um, that they found ways to work together. Um, drug dealing and projects also tended to be safer because there were fewer turf wars and also because there was um, a little bit more of a buffer from from police presence because people kind of acted as their own sort of um uh security kind of network for for the drug dealers so you know what you saw also in in america's housing projects is they kind of created a perfect environment for selling drugs which should i think make us rethink housing policy mm-hmm. in the ways that we you know stack hundreds of people on top of each other um you know then ultimately you know when the projects were were destroyed. You know around the country it was in part because of people's association of them with crime and drugs um, but you know in the process uh communities were also broken up um and in sean's story i i think tells tells that kind of uh story beautifully
0: yeah yeah really fascinating story i want to um i want to bring in someone who was affected by the crack epidemic um donovan let's bring in lisa in santa clara welcome
1: Hi, hey, how are you?
0: Hi, Lisa. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. Um, I was caught off guard <laughs> on my on my commute about um, about about the book and the crack ep- epidemic. Um,
5: mm-hmm.
1: Made me extremely emotional. Um, my dad was addicted to crack. Um, he started at his 10 year reunion. Um, and, uh, I was about a, I was a toddler. So he had been addicted from the time he was 28 all the way up until right before he died of cancer, um, last year. Um, for some people, the epidemic just isn't over. Um, it, um, It affected my childhood deeply. Mm -hmm. Um, He would be gone for days. Um, When I was little, he would say, I'm going skiing. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, it just caused so many issues, um, abandonment issues. Mm -hmm. Um, He would be coming down. He would be violent. He... um, he even tried rehab. It didn't work. Mm. Um, you know, and it affects all types of communities. Um, uh, I'm Mexican American and, you know, even my mom who's, um, Caucasian, um, she even did it. Yeah. She called the free basing. So she tried it. um, you know, the 80s were a gnarly time for it. And yeah. it, um, you know, and these addicts, they're people with yeah. families. And um, the addiction just doesn't stop. And uh, he would even take me with him to these crack houses. Oh, man. Um, he, uh, when I was a teenager and I started getting um, into drugs, Uh, he knew I would sit and I would wait in the living room and just sit there and just smoke a blunt with the dealer's daughter. It just, it just became this kind of thing after a while that
5: was a part of life. Yeah.
0: I mean, you know, actually Donovan, what, when I'm sure that you have talked with people whose parents were, were, addicted to drugs. I mean, how, what would you ask Lisa about this experience? Well, I mean,
2: first I want to thank Lisa for sharing because this is something that we we don't talk about. And when I think of people who have survived the epidemic, I think a lot about those of us who loved and still love people with addiction and the ways that our lives are also impacted um, you know, one of the characters in the book, Elgin Swift, his father was uh, addicted to to crack for mm-hmm. for decades, and he talks about a lot of the stuff that 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 Lisa talks about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess what I'm curious about, I guess, from just a heart to heart place, is, yeah. you know, have you had a chance to be able to deal with the trauma of that, Lisa, to be able yeah. to work through those feelings of abandonment, probably some resentment. Um, likely a lot of stress and ptsd is what i found Uh, Mm. that sort of anxiety that comes out of um, having a insecure life um how have you dealt with that
1: yeah i ended up working through all of that it it didn't happen you know i ended up working through that and i ended up becoming a much more secure woman. Mm -hmm. Um, I no longer have those feelings of abandonment. I really had to, um, I ended up spending a lot of time with myself and enjoying my Mm. own company. Mm. And, um, I no longer relied on relationships. Um, and, um, yeah, my life has been much more pleasant since. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me tell you. <laughs> oh my god. It has been a wild ride. Yeah. I had to grow up hard and fast and um I really missed out on yeah. a on the childhood really because of this experience. And but I wouldn't trade it for anything else in the world. Hmm. Um because I wouldn't be who I am today. Yeah. And um, Lisa, and yeah. I really like who I am because of the journey that I have gone through yeah. with my family. And I had to, I thought I forgave my dad a long time ago, but it turns out I actually didn't. Yeah. I
0: got mm-hmm. really
1: good at just compartmentalizing and pretending, but it wasn't until towards the end of my dad's life and some things came up and, um, I realized I actually didn't and I had a meltdown
3: mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. and, um, so it was towards the end that I found peace and, um, forgiveness and, um, I worked through a lot of things, and,
0: um, Lisa, thank you so much. My yeah. I want to, yeah, I just want to thank you again for sharing that experience. And also, I'm so glad that you were able to find that piece, um, you know, towards the end of your father's life. I, I really can't, can't thank you enough for, for sharing that with us this morning. Thank you. Um, you know, Tom, you know, as I'm thinking about Lisa's story. I'm thinking about your book and the people in it, people who were affected so deeply by this crisis. And yet like on a policy level, like on the ways of thinking about how we, you know, influence the structures of our society so that it's easier for people to get out of this situation, it would have been easier for, you know, Lisa's father to to get out of uh, drug addiction. It seems like we kind of took the opposite approach and made it really difficult for people to get out of these situations.
2: Yeah, that the policy approach has always been um, a, a criminal justice response. This idea that addiction, even when it's happening to an entire generation of people, is a individual failing that we should respond to with incarceration. And, you know, on the federal level, um, policy decisions like um focusing on possession over something like interdiction, which is you know the term that's used for actually uh disrupting the flow of drugs mm-hmm. into the US, that 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 was a choice that we made as as a country that our that our leaders made it, and we supported those leaders with our votes to say, you know, instead of figuring out where the cocaine's coming from, we're going to target both dealers and addicts. Mm -hmm. And what that did actually was it just created just deeper cycles of abuse. It it, it sort of re-traumatized people. Um, What I wish we had in this country, instead of this criminal justice response, was a public health response that included um, recovery services for sure, um, but also harm reduction, because you know some people are not ready for recovery, or it might take them several attempts at at recovery, and we have to figure out how we keep people alive while they're still using. Yeah. And you know, harm reduction you know includes things like housing. Um, harm reduction includes things like. Um, you know, distributing fentanyl test strips to make sure people aren't overdosing because um, they've had a drug that's laced with something you know more more potent like like fentanyl. Um, it is needle exchange programs. That all of these things, you know, you know that term harm reduction is is apt, right? Because it it tries to keep you whole. Um, or sort of as sound as as it can while you're on your path to recovery,
0: and and that's what I wish people like Lisa's dad had. Yeah, and we will we will talk about this more as we kind of think about what lessons the the crack era has for us now, because you know harm reduction, as many of our listeners know, this is a hot button topic here in the in the Bay Area, and we'll we'll definitely talk about it more. I wanted to give just a a, a few. You know, just a second here to Kurt Schmoke, who was the mayor of Baltimore, is one of the major characters in your book, because he kind of presented this alternative path and was more or less shut down by everybody except for the voters of Baltimore, I suppose.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know that the story has been that basically everybody wanted a criminal justice response to the crack epidemic. And, you know, that's simply not true. I think that, you know, those of us that grew up in neighborhoods that were hard hit wanted an end to the violence. We wanted an end to, you know, the sort of rampant uh, 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 abuse that we saw. But lots of people, including Kurt Schmoke, were smart enough to say, eh, You know, you can't incarcerate your way out of something like this and that we should be using our public health services. And Kurt, you know, announced that as mayor of Baltimore in 1988. Mm. And like you said, he was completely laughed, you know, out of congressional hearings and in lots of conferences. Um, But he's been proven right since.
0: Mm. We're talking with Donovan X. Ramsey about his book When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. You know, another listener tweets, My indigenous family wasn't affected by crack, but by its cousin, meth. But for me, the two are connected. The only difference is rural versus city. I watched my cousins in the late 80s and 90s succumb to their addiction. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the new book "When Crack Was King: A People's History of a Misunderstood Era." We're joined by the author of that book, Donovan X. Ramsey. I want to bring in another caller. Let's go to uh, Nicole in Oakland. Welcome.
5: Hi. Thanks for having me, Alexis.
0: Yeah. Thanks for joining us.
5: Um. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I'm calling because actually the first, the last callers. Uh, call reminded me of my own story uh, both my parents were ad- addicted to crack and my dad grew up in both my parents were white but my dad grew up in the south and a very like poor family and whole family uh, suffered from addiction and um, it was a very strange existence for me because my I lived in the suburbs and like you know kind of a middle-class suburbs in Los Angeles and I was having this really traumatic, strange experience surrounded by suburban LA and mm. it's very alone in it. And my dad was in and out of jail my whole life. And so people would ask me things like, What does your dad do? And I'm like, Uh next question. Um, oh, man. and yeah, it was it was very weird, but it really her call made, reminded me of that of course, but it also made me think about what Donovan was just talking about with the intersection of incarceration and the crack epidemic, because I became very passionate about both harm reduction and incarceration. And I got so angry when people talked about prisoners as if they were just gone or nothing or we didn't care about them because I was like, that's my dad. (laughs) That's not some nameless person who you don't know. That is my dad. Um, And he unfortunately uh, died two days after being released from jail uh, on, quote, compassionate release from cancer. But,
0: um,
5: yeah, it's real and it's everywhere and it's
0: really, yeah, yeah, we've done,
5: we have not gone far enough.
0: Thank you so much for for sharing that with us, Nicole. I mean, another just tragic story, really. And i I think where I take this, Donovan, is we how did this end, <laughs> right? Uh, not because we know it didn't end quickly. We didn't. We know there wasn't one factor, you know. We've heard both resilience and. Um, and also, you know, tragic, tragic circumstances. So I wanted to ask you, like, tell me about the factors that you think actually ended the crack epidemic.
2: So, you know, it's not um, as much what I think as much as what the researchers point to. Um, There were some great, um, Um, studies that were published by the U.S. Department of Justice in the mid-90s, I think around 1996, where they wanted to study that question, why did the crack epidemic end? And what they found was that it was the next generation of of young people, as they were starting to experiment with drugs, that they made a decision to not use not only crack, but hard drugs um, broadly. So rates of um, hard drug use for Black and Latino folks in particular, really plummets around 1992. Um, you know, if you were to map the crack epidemic, you would see it sort of gained steam in the early 80s, about 83, um, peaking at around 1987, and then continuing at a very sort of high rate until the early 90s, about 1992, and then plummeting. And what they say is that it was just the example of what folks saw happening in their communities, in their families, you know, in their homes that made them um, adamantly reject mm-hmm. hard drugs. So, you know, and listening to the callers, mm-hmm. you know, when they talk about, you know, sitting with the dealer's daughter smoking a blunt, you know, that that is a, a scary thing to, to hear a young person, you know, using drugs with their parents like that. But it was a very different choice than what her father did. Mm-hmm. And. You know, uh, you know, we have to thank people like um, Nicole, right? Who, who, despite those cycles of addiction in their family, you know, it sounds like have made different. De- it sounds like she's made a different decision, you know, in her life, and and ultimately that's what ended the epidemic. Um, drug epidemics really are trends, and like any trend, whether it's you know bell bottoms or or, or pet rocks, that the next cohort has to pick it up for it to continue. Um, so we have to think. I think people that we never really thought, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, would would be the end of it, and that was young people who made who made different decisions.
0: So you've also touched on some of the lessons about criminalization versus kind of using a, a public health approach. One of the things that's happening here, Donovan, is that people are seeing an incredible amount of street drug usage. And people are seeing, you know, encountering people who are not in their right minds on the streets. And it has led to a a lot of people to, you know, turn away from or at least talk about turning away from um, the harm reduction approaches that San Francisco really had, had been at the forefront of. For people that you're running into that maybe are seeing people on meth, which is really, you know, what if people want to hear more about this who've done shows on this recently about the the flood of meth onto the streets like what what would you tell them people who are are thinking to themselves yeah but like we've got people doing all these drugs on the street and you know acting wild and what do we do
2: well i would say first that you know you have to investigate what's actually going on with people that one of the outcomes of the crack epidemic is that you know, anybody that was acting in a way that we deem socially unacceptable or sometimes criminal, we just said, OK, that's a crackhead. So, you know, you may see someone acting erratically on the street, but do you know that they are high on a drug and, you know, having or, or could they just be having some sort of mental episode that is going untreated? You know, is this kind of telling that too that
0: me. meth head kind of has a lot of the same connotations as as crackhead once did.
2: It does, it does. And also too, I think that a lot of the 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 homeless more broadly are assumed to be drug addicts. And that the drug that we associate the right that we sort of associate them with 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 meth that that we associate them with crack, the the reality is that even with people who are experiencing let's say addiction and they're living on the street that there is a complex system that is keeping them in that state mm-hmm. and that take just taking the drug away from them or incarcerating them is not enough to disrupt right like all of those systems that are actually leading to them being on the street. And we need, again, things like harm reduction programs to keep people alive because we don't want to see people dead. Right. But we also have to think about wraparound services. I think is, you know, is what a lot of folks call them, looking at actually what people need that that will actually disrupt their addiction. So for some people it's housing. You know, I I saw one study in my research that said for women who are experiencing addiction and living on the street, the biggest factor in their recovery is whether or not they can regain custody of their children.
0: Hmm.
2: So, you know, it has to be a um, person-to-person approach where you're looking at what's actually driving their addiction. For some people, it's mental illness, and they are using substances to 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 self-medicate. Um, you know, it's not as simple as, you know, just locking folks up because then what you do is you just further disrupt their lives. And it is that level of disruption and, and uncertainty that causes people to turn to drugs, you know, often in the first place. Yeah.
0: You know, another listener uh, writes in to say, I was born in New York City in 73. So I lived through the entirety of the crack era. Outside of the heroin epidemic that hit black and brown communities, the, quote, projects was actually an idyllic place pre-crack to grow up. I definitely think the crack era contributed to my childhood drama, uh, a trauma. I developed a hypervigilance to be sensitive to who and what was around me, a sort of survival tool that I still have but wish I never even had to develop. The public policy response to crack through the lens of America's ongoing structural racist framework killed many people, disrupted many lives and communities, led to violence and contributed to the trauma of an entire generation that was raised through the crack era.
2: Mm. Such a good point. You know, I um, if I could just say, you know, growing up in a neighborhood that was a high crime neighborhood, hard hit by crack, I had to deal with the. The fear of the the violence that surrounded the drug trade, the the gunshots that we would hear, you know, into the night. I have, you know, I was afraid of of addicts, frankly, and like what they might do. You know, having our house broken into a number of times, but also I was afraid of the police because growing up as a as a black boy, you know, I was suspected of being a dealer. I was suspected of of being an addict. So. Um. Yeah, it did. That that response did compound the trauma. It did create more, um, violence often and and uncertainty in our neighborhoods.
0: Yeah. I also wanted to keep you saying to talk about the resilience that all your characters, all four of your characters, have some extremely difficult times. I mean, not all of them. Um, with crack itself. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you came to see that response, you know, and where you think it comes from.
2: It was really important for me to, to highlight the resilience as a part of really answering the question, how did the crack epidemic end? You know that we got a lot of press and coverage for the epidemic, but nobody rang a bell to say it was over. And that means that you know, people were left with lots of unresolved feelings and questions, um, lots of policy, right? That you know continues to be the residue of the epidemic. But it seemed to me as a missed opportunity to to celebrate the fact that we survived it and without a whole lot of help, you know, and um when I looked at both the research and then the individual stories of of all the folks that I interviewed, what I found was um, it was the power of community as, as corny as that might sound, that, that, that was the, the factor in whether or not people survived. It was, um, you know, grandmothers taking in grandchildren Mm -hmm. while their kids ran the streets. It was, um, you know, neighborhood organizations that, Gave out food. It was teachers taking care of of, of young people. Um, I mean, so many different, you know, small things that again kept people alive long enough for the storm of the epidemic to pass. Yeah. And we can't um, underestimate that. You know, the the sort of power of, of of community care to to end something like the crack epidemic.
0: You know, got a comment from listener Roberto who says, "I was a teenager in the '80s, and there are several ways the crack epidemic profoundly impacted me. Seeing family and friends seduced by the money that came with dealing, and the tragedy of their incarceration." Uh, to end Roberto's uh, comment there, sorry about that hiccup, the pardoning of the guys busted for the crack Iran-Contra scandal cemented my belief that the so-called drug war was only a war against poor people, especially people of color. And we've had a couple of other um, questions about the CIA connection to cocaine as reflected in you know, John Kerry's uh, report as a congressman. Can you talk to me a little bit how you came down on all that complex of issues? You know, it's
2: it's it's tricky because the that there is no smoking gun that points to a conspiracy on the part of the federal government to um, to either create the crack epidemic or to allow it to happen. But there is a lot of evidence, um, as you mentioned, you know, found in the Kerry Commission. And a commission that was led by Congresswoman Maxine Waters that shows um, dozens of incidents where the CIA, namely, turned the other way while you know um, folks were trafficking cocaine in the United States, and you know the the Iran Contra affair is one example of um, of that, where we were um, working with rebels in in Nicaragua to overthrow that country's government. And Congress would not support funding for the federal government to do that, um, for, for the president of the United States to sort of carry on that kind of project. So instead we sent them arms. We, um, you know, Oliver North was in charge of that program to illegally ship arms to Nicaragua, to these rebels. And, um, and they were caught redheaded doing this because one of the planes, I'm sorry, one of the, um, yeah, planes crashed, actually. Um, And folks that were doing that were were captured and weapons were seized. and um, But it also came out that one of the other ways that we supported the Contras was by allowing them to traffic cocaine into the United States, that that was a form of fundraising. Um, You know, there was excellent reporting done by a journalist named Gary Webb or the um, San Jose Mercury News, where he was able to make connections between one of LA's biggest drug dealers, um, uh, Freeway Ricky Ross, and a Nicaraguan national known to the federal government. Um, and you know, and, and that pipeline existed and sort of not just in that case, but in many cases. Um, what that says to me is not that the US government created crack or that there was intention to disrupt, you know, communities of color with crack, but that that there was negligence, that there was a level of indifference for the harm that it was causing in, in communities of color um, as it related to the trafficking. Mm-hmm. And I should say on top of that, there was this doubling down effect of then criminalizing people in possession of the end product, which was crack cocaine, and not, you know, trying to disrupt that flow from other countries. That, um, and you know, it's 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 hard to look at that and not see a conspiracy. And I think that people can come to whatever conclusions that they want. For me as a journalist, you know, if I don't have a smoking gun, <laughs> you know, then I can't come to that conclusion. Um, yeah. uh, but I think that there's lots of evidence there that 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 there was lots of wrongdoing and and mishandling. Um a policy
0: last thing do you think writing this book has helped you deal with you know the questions you had in your childhood? oh completely um
2: you know at the end of this writing process uh i'll I'll share um I went through almost something like a nervous breakdown to be honest mm-hmm. that I um had had done the research and reporting and I was fine, but as I was writing it mm-hmm. I I, you know, started to get heart palpitations. Uh, I would break out in hives whenever I sat down to write. I lost about 40 pounds. And what I realized is that um, listening to all of those stories, I mean, hundreds of people over, the, o- over years and playing back audio of, you know, often sometimes like the worst things that ever happened to them, it really did have an effect on me. But also it, it triggered a lot of those memories that I talked about earlier and i had to process them and i hope that anybody else that survived the crack epidemic has an opportunity to to process
0: the the trauma that they had yeah we've been talking with donovan x ramsey about his new persuasive book when crack was king a people's history of a misunderstood era thank you so much for joining us donovan thank you so much for having me alexis Thank you so much also to Lisa and Nicole for sharing those stories. I know that cannot be easy. Thank you so much. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with host Mina Kim.
1: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the heising Simons Foundation.
3: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way—
4: So, I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network.
5: Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
2: Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country